Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Uh, Peter Pomerantsev, uh, the author of This Is Not Propaganda. Peter, you have fashioned yourself as the authority on the propaganda of Putin's Russia. Is that fair? That I'm the authority? On the architecture, the cultural architecture of the invention of reality or the reinvention of reality of, of Putin's Russia. So I have no idea if I'm the authority, and that's certainly not an authority. An authority. The only authority I have is from having worked inside the Russian TV system, which I suppose gave me some insights as to sort of the psychology of the system that produces it. And also because I was working for Russian entertainment TV, actually not news, I had to spend a lot of my time thinking about Russian audiences, how they perceive reality, and talking to Russian producers and how they think about mass influence, essentially. I guess that gave me an, a semi-insider's view, but the rest, the rest is just interpretation. And that was in the 90s, right? No, no, that was in the 2000s, actually. That was in, up till 2010. So you, you, you've made your, your name on the idea, maybe I'm vulgarizing this a little bit, that, um, that, that, that Putin had invent, invented an alternative reality, a kind of I won't say virtual reality, but a, a reality television version of politics. Is that a fair way to describe your description of Putin's Russia? So without a doubt, one of the, I think there's two things to understand. A, the Soviets already had an obsession with propaganda, not merely as a formator of public opinion, but kind of as a creator of the new communist man. And the propagandist was already sort of a demigod in the Soviet system. And that's very important to understand this tradition that already existed. It was a very exalted, you know, a very exalted role that they gave to propagandists. And no shame. And the first thing that Putin does when he comes to power is grab control of television. Uh, certainly he and the people around him had realized that TV would be sort of the essence of power. Almost an ersatz for power, because actually the state was still quite weak. Oligarchs were still very strong. There was not a crazy risk of the country falling apart. And really the way they bound the country and held it together was through the power of media. So without And this was a, a mm, conscious decision. The people who worked with Putin in the 90s who since have stopped working with him talk about this completely openly um, and, and it's reflected in their actions. Um, yeah, no, completely. They, they, 
maybe because, again, maybe partly because the Kremlin was so weak. You know, they were looking for ways to project power across the country. And was in what sense was this a consequence of Putin's own experience, particularly uh, during the fall of the wall and his humiliation in, in Dresden? Could well be. Uh, I'm not a, an expert on sort of Putin's personal journey and his personal feelings, but maybe, you know, there, there is definitely a tradition in Russian thinking in the kind of sector of analysts in Russia who are between media and geopolitical conspiracy and security who see the end of the Cold War as an information operation by the West. They even talk about Operation Perestroika, essentially as a way of kind of, not a competition of values, but that the West had a better uh, use of perception and information to undermine the USSR. Putin, I'd say, didn't talk about this for a long time. Now, kind of after protests against him in Russia, he's adopted a lot of this rhetoric and the people around him have always made it into a state ideology. So it's a really radical revisionist history of the Cold War that the Soviet Union didn't lose because it had rubbish economics and um, you know it was an oppressive power, but that it was just not good enough for info ops. How important is the, the spirit of nostalgia in the ideology of Putinism, this idea that the past was better? So here I think it is very interesting to look at the development of that and also see why Russia is the forerunner to America, Europe, Latin Hungary. America. Wow, I'm way beyond that now. Philippines, everywhere, basically. So here's my version of this. Essentially, Russia got to the state that everybody else is at now a lot earlier. Ironic that the Russians were first for once, wasn't it? Um, isn't it? I ironic, but actually because they lost. <laughs> because the, Russia was the country where all kind of ideas we had about a better future and progress collapsed the earliest. So obviously communism, which no one really believed in. Even the, the late, communists. Especially the communists by the late 1980s. But then democratic capitalism, which in Russia had been conceived as the opposite of communism, really, in a very kind of naive way, I think, kind of brings devastation in the early 90s. And already in the early 90s, you see these elements come through in Russian political strategy, which we see here now. So in, instead of trying to convince people, because there's nothing to convince them of, you spread doubt. Conspiracies replace ideologies as a way of explaining the world. Um, this kind of personality-driven politics, uh, which in Russia was pioneered by Zhirinovsky and then Putin kind of imitates in, his, in a very different way, but where kind of like the personality becomes more important than the ideology. And kind of a strategy of populism where spin doctors are very consciously for every election taking different social groups and uniting them around a version of the people, which is only meant to last as long as the election. And then falls apart again. You have to regather them. So not around an ideology, but around a kind of very, very va vapid identity that is formulated on a feeling. Is it built around the the ideology of the people as the the example of authenticity of truth? That's a very good question. So that was definitely the Soviet thing. So the communist thing completely idolized the people. The people were the sacred thing in communist kind of you know, secular theology. But only the working class, not yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. There was, a, there was a wisdom there and a knowledge. And there's a, a very good, actually, essay about, by Slavoj Žižek about Miloš Forman and what Miloš Forman did in the, che in the Czechoslovakia. He satirized the normal people, the working class people. And that was completely off bounds. You're not allowed to take the mickey out of the working class. So 
No, I don't think it's about that. Um, I think this is now it's something very, very different. It's a kind of a construction of a very amorphous idea of what in Russia was called the Putin majority. Yeah. Uh, here it's known as, you know, it's in America that they're using like the people, but there they use this idea of the большинство, the majority. So it's a majoritarianist ideology. Most people. It's a way of then using that as a truncheon to say, hey, you disagree with me? Well, you're not part of the majority. And the others are the liberals, the internationalists, it the Jews, move. blah, it blah, moves. blah. It moves. That's what I mean. At the start, it wasn't a spark. Actually, in Putin's early election, one of the big p- groups they try to attract were the liberals and the academics and the army. You have to be very, very amorphous if you're going to do this sort of populist identity building. You can't articulate any ideology. You have a character and you have a feeling. So the Putin spin doctors talk about, in 1999, the feeling that they wanted to build this majority around was, and this is their words, the left behind. Anyone who felt left behind by the Yeltsin period. Yeah? So army, secret services, teachers, intelligentsia, anybody but the oligarchs, basically. Many years later, it's moved. You still have a Putin majority, but now the enemy are liberals and intelligentsia while the oligarchs are part of the majority now. So the strategy is of what, of, of speed, of deception, of perpetually moving and never being able to, to, to have your ideology nailed down. There's never really an ideology there. It's always a kind of shadow boxing. Exactly. Because the minute you have an ideology, you're going to lose a lot of people. So you want to be as amorphous as possible. So you want to be vague but concrete simultaneously. Appear concrete, but actually be vague. Well, look at the way Trump and Boris Johnson here operate. It's the same thing. Every time someone thinks they've nailed them down, uh, they kind of do something else. And you're doing that, Peter, now. You've jumped from Putin to (laughs) Boris and Trump. So you asked about nostalgia. Should I come back to nostalgia? Let's come back to nostalgia. Exactly. Sorry. So, of course, if all ideas... But the key thing is here that in Russia, the idea of all the ideas of the future we had fall away first. And then if there's no idea of the future anymore, then all that's left are various forms of nostalgia. And already by the late 1990s, actually, I think Svetlana Boyim, who's a great Harvard expert on the idea of nostalgia, is writing about Russia in ways that you can write about the West now. Um, that the 1990s started with all these utopias and are just finishing with completely different types of nostalgia. That's the only mode of thinking left. Now, of course, the one thing you don't need in nostalgia is facts. You don't, you know, that's not an a mental architecture where facts are useful or necessary. You know, when you, when you have a version of the future, you need facts to kind of prove that you're getting to this future. You know, it's communist or capitalist. Look, economy is improving towards socialist paradise. I mean, they were lying the whole time, the communists, but they needed the rhetoric of facts. Same with democratic capitalism. Look, but they knew where they were lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, somebody everyone... once said to me yeah. that the, the communists knew they were lying, the populists don't. Is that fair? No, no, I don't think, I don't think the populists, oh, you mean now? The populists just don't care about facts. It doesn't matter. So they're sort Trump, of, and, Trump and Johnson don't care. So they're rather vulgar postmodernists. For them, facts are meaningless. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely, and some of them actually even use some of the rhetoric of postmodernism. Not they've necessarily read it, but they've just heard it. You know, mm. There are no facts, only interpretations. Get off my back. Surkov you know. does that, doesn't he? Surkov does that. I think bits of that are in Trump. You know, you can never know truth. Can you really ever know what happened? You know, there's kind of like, uh, postmodern epistemology that he uses all the time. Um, or that truth is just power. The ma- sort of the, the vulgar Machiavellian understanding of the world. I mean, there is a school of thought that says that postmodernism leads to that. Because by taking away the ground where you can have an objective discussion about things, you can't critique power anymore. Because power can always move away. And if, you know, if power isn't trying to establish facts, it can just do whatever it likes. But I think even before we get to that very sophisticated place, uh, there's a much simpler thing. 
I mean, facts are unpleasant. You know, they're kind of useful. They show you're getting somewhere, but it's glum reality. The biggest fact of our lives is death. For most of us, facts remind us, you know, overweight, whatever, we're going to die. It's not <laughs> nice, you know? And so when you have these kind of politicians going, there's a kind of Say a that loudly. When you have politicians say like saying, fuck facts, <laughs> then... Uh, Do they ever say that? Literally? But that's the attitude that they you know. It's, there's like almost a teenage rebellion in there, like sod So it's reality. going back to childhood? I think so, a little bit. Yeah. Actually, childhood is not so, a bad so, place to put so, it. No, no, Adam Phillips, the yeah. psychoanalyst, argues that nostalgia is a form of wanting to go back to childhood. Is that fair, do you think? Well, he's a psychoanalyst, so he would tie everything into that. But without a doubt, there is this period as a child, as you grow up, where you're not lying. You live in a fantasy land. You don't understand the difference quite between reality and fiction. I mean, I think people have when they're six and seven. Uh, I definitely had it. Uh, and you're not lying. You're just like, you know, your imaginary friends are just there. And there's a moment that happens when, boom, often actually associated with seeing death, where reality kind of hits you. And yeah, so I do think they're appealing to that bit of you before. I don't know. It is a rebellion probably against death. It's, that's the real appeal. Is it surprising that Putin's favorite Beatles song is Yesterday? I did not know that. Um, I did not know he had a favorite Beatles song. But now that you've said it, it, it definitely works with the myth of Putin. And knowing Putin's spin doctors, maybe they put that out there on purpose to just sort of, you know, underscore his nostalgic credentials. But I don't know. I know you don't want to be a, a psychologist of, uh, of Putin. That's hard. But what I don't understand is someone as Machiavellian, as down-to-earth, as dour and analytical as Putin has, has so brilliantly adopted the, the archaeology, the architecture of fiction to build this new political ideology. Is, is, is that, it, it, might it be some sort of logical connection? Could it only have been someone like Putin? who so dour and down to earth could have done, accomplished this kind of bizarre uh, reinvention. So exactly, I, I, I've never, I was never in the Kremlin pool, I've never studied Putin. But, what, but you what must do, think about him. I mean, do, your, 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 your hmm. writing focuses on Putin's Russia, maybe not Putin himself. Hmm. So you must have thought about the guy. I've thought about the generation, because that's a very interesting generation. It's a generation that grew up in the 70s, that's super cynical, that really doesn't believe in anything in an abstract way. And then they're a very interesting generation because, and especially the KGB guys who were, you know, the most cynical out of all the cynics. They, whenever I've talked to that generation of people, they pride themselves on seeing through the bullshit of life and seeing that everything is choreographed and everything is a game. Um, you've got to remember that in Russia, you had very good post Soviet postmodernist art, which was doing a little bit like postmodernist art here, but kind of like analyzing the kind of the, um, the fakeness of the Soviet system. But these guys really saw through it. Uh, and they just grasped that. And that kind of, whether by accident, they kind of, maybe before anyone else, just got to this point where all the systems for success that we knew would, would sort of crumble. What I always used to hear in Russia from that generation was, our system crumbled, the Soviet one, yours will too soon. You have no idea. Because you, you guys don't actually believe in anything either yet. And, and I always used to laugh at them. I thought it was losers. But it's like they gl glimpsed some horrible, dark vacuum in the middle of Western civilization before we did. A, 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 Dos a Dostoevskian insight into the nature of Western so-called democracy. But that's kind of the job of the KGB. 
that's what they did. They would just stare at the West and look for weak spots and look for hypocrisy. So maybe they just trained to do that and suddenly that training turned out to be really useful. So they, we thought they were losers. Remember, we all thought this was a loser generation which had nothing to offer. And actually, they seem to have adapted. The ones who survived, many didn't. The ones who adapted seem to have just got the 21st century. It, I don't think it's sustainable, by the way. I do think it'll collapse. I mean, I don't think this can survive. But um, it's, their, it's, it's definitely their zeitgeist. Well, before we get to how to, to fight this, uh, your new book focuses on the way in which this, the, 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 the post-Soviet zeitgeist now has been exported to the West. When did you realize that, that the Russian experience was, in some senses, perhaps universal? Yeah, I don't think it's been exported. I think the same processes are happening here. And, you know, the simple explanation would be they started happening here after a series of kind of, you know, sort of political and economic disasters to do with... You know, 2008 and 9 2008, in invasion of Iraq. We can find lots of places. Globalization. I know globalization is a bit vague for me, but, but certainly sort of what's interesting is it kind of happened in lots of places. So in Mexico, it happened in a different way. One kind of like that, you know, they thought that after their own kind of change in 1989, they'd have a better, a better country. And then it's, it's not turned out very well. So it's happened in different ways in different places. But a lot of countries and a lot of places have reached the same kind of conclusion as the Russians, that all our versions of the future aren't getting us anywhere. Or enough people in every country feel that, because a lot of people don't feel that. So people have stopped believing in the future and started to reinvent the, the nostalgia of the past, to fetishize the past. There's the nostalgia. The greatness of the past, whether it's Putin or Bolsonaro or Orban or Duarte or... Um, or, or, uh, or Grillo, they're all really doing the same thing. And there could be something else going on there, something more systemic, in the sense that the idea of the future for a long time was this competition between sort of the Soviet system and, and the Western system. Uh, and they're kind of predicated on each other. So uh, even apart from the disasters of 2008 and, and, and other catastrophes, it's almost as if, you know, when the Soviet system disappeared, there was nothing more left to compete with. We're kind of competing with ourselves, which was always going to end up in so the So 89, <laughs> if, if we're going to historicize this, we maybe should begin in 89. Is that fair? Probably. 89. With the, the, the sort of the, the Western conceit of the end of history. So there's a Russian philosopher, uh, whose name I've now forgotten, who at the time of when Fukuyama wrote The End of History said, yes, I agree it's the end of history, but that's not going to be good. Actually, while there was history, there was at least a kind of intellectual apparatus to talk about ideals. Obviously, the 20th century was terrible, but, but at least that was there. And what he said we'll get now, these sort of black holes where history has disappeared and all norms disappear. And I think looking forward to ISIS, to what's happening in Syria, to East Ukraine, these are these kind of black holes. Like we're just like, you know, all norms have collapsed. And we don't even try to do anything about it because we've kind of lost our own belief in any kind of progress. So I think he anticipated it. It's a different kind of horror to the 20th century, where it was, it was awful utopias using people as mincemeat for their um, perverse paradises. This is the opposite. This is kind of like, you know, these anarchic gaps that are opening up everywhere, these lacerations. How much of the crisis in the West um, can be explained by Russian meddling, Russian investment in trolls, Russian investment in neo-authoritarian, sometimes even neo-Nazi groups who are fundamentally opposed to traditional democratic institutions? 
Well, look, it depends where you are, firstly. So in Ukraine, it's been invaded. So there it's like right. just a war. We call it hybrid war, but it's, it's a war. That's, just, you know, that's, that's what it is. And in some of the frontline states, you have these massive Russian populations. Uh, so there's a slightly different dynamic. Certainly in the Balkans, yeah, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the Baltics. Yeah, look, generally, you can't explain anything by an outside force. Generally, you know, all responsibility comes from oneself. So, you know, I certainly wouldn't look for an outside cause. However, Russia is playing these margins, you know, with a kind of strategy and with a lot of tactics. And there's something, and this is very hard to measure, there's something incredibly powerful in this kind of the sense that there's a beacon for these people. It's very hard to measure that effect. It's not direct. It's just the sense that there's a big guy out there who will help you, who's got your back, who'll give you money, you'll work together. He doesn't give a toss about the global rules. That's very hard to quantify, but imagine it wasn't there. We'd definitely have this, these issues, but there's just it just gives it another kind of another kind of level. Um, that's so hard to quantify, but I think that's the most important thing. And the fact that you know, here is this, you know, what Putin really caught was the trolley tone, you know, that satirical nasty trolley tone that we see on the internet that Salvini has, that all these guys have. Putin's had it for a long time. He caught a, a, a kind of aggressive nihilism. Aggressive nihilism with a lot of, you know, it is all about resentment. You know, it is all about kind of, you thought I was down. So it's Nietzsche and Dostoevsky in a big nasty stew. And, and 4chan. You know, there's a lot of irony there. It's deeply satirical. Can we blame? I mean, would, could this have happened without the internet? If we still had traditional newspapers? If we didn't have Facebook and 4chan and YouTube and Instagram? Um... It, you mean, you mean the rise of Salvini and... Uh, well, the rise or, of the whole thing, uh, the, 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 the sort of the challenge to democracy, to facts, to truth, to traditional institution. To what extent is it technology-based? Um, firstly, I saw this happen inside Russia before the new technology hit. So it was already there. I think we already saw it in America with the, the emergence of cable news. And so it, this was already happening. But without a doubt, the internet and especially the algorithmic logic of social media, which is different to the old internet, you know, like you know, links and stuff like that, the kind of the way the social media is geared around polarizing extreme emotions and rewards that, and the ad tech system is based on that, almost kind of like you know these these politicians who are purposefully scandalous are almost kind of like like that because they know that the ad tech system likes that kind of discourse in order to get virality. Um, I think that has turbocharged it without a doubt. I mean, like, politicians do change according to the media. We get a different kind of politician come in with TV. You know, TV almost produces its own genre of politicians. And I think social media is producing its own kind of genre of politicians. Um, Who would be the, the quintessential Trump, I assume? Certainly not Putin. Actually, Putin himself struggles a little bit. He's very much in the TV area yeah. era. Uh, and they, they had to struggle to get him over because uh, he's not a natural tweeter. He's quite, he's very much TV. But, you know, they're trying to like, get him into, into, the, into the social media world. Um, Salvini is, is really, really good, the Italian guy. I mean, he's really good. Uh, but Putin caught the tone. You know, he caught the tone before a lot of these guys were really around. What do you make of Putin? Putin gave a, what I thought at least was a very, uh, what's the best word, a very memorable interview 
to the Financial Times in the summer of 2019. So I'm saying that now because of the historicity. Yeah, 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 I know the one. So yeah, yeah, I saw that. Um, where he basically says democracy is finished, Western representative democracy. Was he was he playing games, or is this an articulation of a of a, of a new kind of Cold War, a new uh, systemic challenge to the West? Um, so he actually, what he actually said, if I remember rightly, it wasn't about representative democracy. He sort of did a ca car He basically, it was basically doing an a like one of these signs to the right. Basically, he was using a caricature of liberalism that's popular among you know the Salvinis of this world. But look, Russia has made, Russia's still good at actually having alliances with all sorts of players in the West, but overall its biggest allies, and these are the allies trying to get rid of Western sanctions uh, against Russia. You know, these are the allies that want to push for closer ties with Russia in many ways. They do real work for them, uh, is the new right. Um, so he was kind of sending a signal like, you know, he's like, you know, I'm your friend. Uh, and I'm even going to say this out loud, which I think is a big deal. So, I mean, his propaganda has been saying this for ages. Uh, so, you know. so, that, so it wasn't news to you. You don't think it was a particularly distinctive interview, a memorable point. I think it was interesting that he said it publicly because usually Putin's like, I'm a bit, is above politics in many ways. Uh, and this was obviously a very big win for Nod to Farage, et cetera, et cetera, but also kind of to Trump. So he wasn't talking about representative democracy. He was saying liberalism is over because of immigration, essentially. Immigration and LGBT rights. Those are the two things he went for. And those are the two things, we research propaganda campaigns a lot, that are purposefully being used to unite the American, let's call it the alt-right, that's too niche maybe, the, the American new right and the European new right. So, and, and the Russians come in and try to sort of like jump in on that. So it was, it was a commitment to his friends. Peter, how do we fight back? How do we, how do we fight back on behalf of the values that I'm guessing you and I share, the value of facts, of truth, of democracy, of the rights of minorities. It, it, fight back against the world that, that you have so brilliantly described in your last two books. Well, look, there's, there's three, three problems, I think, and we, and we, we often start getting them confused because they're interconnected, but, but it helps kind of disaggregate them if we're actually thinking about action, actionable things. So one is a Russia problem. The Russia problem won't be solved in the information sphere, weirdly enough, because the costs to Russia for its kind of like, you know, fire hose of bullshit are, are virtually zero. No one's going to sort of invade them because of a troll campaign. You know I mean, the, the, the costs are zero. They don't care if they're caught lying. And it's very cheap. Um, we can slow them down. We can have, you know, fact-checking organizations, but we'll never win there. However, the Russians have other vulnerabilities. Uh, it's actually uh, a country in a classical dilemma situation where it needs confrontation with the West to kind of secure its national cohesion, but it completely needs all this, as much, a lot of economic relations with the West down to selling oil and gas to us. So the place to hurt Russia would not be in the information space. So that's kind of political warfare, and that's about having political will to do it, you know. So it's the economic side where they're weak on. So that's the Russia problem. Um, there is no magical information thing we can do with Putin, uh, apart from just sensible stuff like good journalism. Secondly, there's, there's an information problem where the information space, look, there's a deep, deep paradox here that we really haven't worked out how to deal with. 1989 was meant to be the victory of free speech over censorship. This was meant to be great. There was metaphors that we all use, that we live in a, a marketplace of ideas where the best products will win. Right? 
which is about freedom of expression. You know, if everyone, the more people speak, the better democracy will be, the better debate will be. Um, that's, you know, the old formula that fallacious information is countered with best, more and better information. So truth wins out. It was kind of a market idea as well. It was very much the more you have, the best stuff wins. And that's turned out to be absolute nonsense. A bit like, you know, pure free market economics turned out to be absolute nonsense. The reverse as well. is, in, in some sense, is true. Clearly. I mean, I wouldn't undo freedom of expression. But um, yes, it's turned out that, you know, you can use, you know, censorship nowadays isn't done by constricting speech. It's about flooding the information space of so much bullshit that people don't know what the hell's going on anymore. Even sort of aggressive campaigns against opposition and dissidents, they're not done through secret police, they're done through troll farms, who just destroy someone's operate, someone's reputation and well-being without ever doing anything actually illegal. So I don't know, the Russian troll farms just sued Facebook for, um, they didn't sue them, but they kind of raised, when Facebook started taking down their news pages, they said, this is a, uh, you're, you're attacking our freedom of speech. And the far right uses this as well. So freedom of speech has been turned against the values that it was meant to support. That's a huge question how you deal with it. It would be disastrous to start introducing censorship. That means we roll back 1989. Putin doesn't mind if we introduce censorship, then he'll just do more as well to all the Chinese. So we can't suddenly start talking like censors. And we've started to do that. You know, the regulation in Europe that's coming out around the internet is all framed. We've got to stop the disinformation. Disinformation isn't a legal term. So we have to make sense what on earth are the democratic rules for the information space. That's a huge project, but I would start with the idea of think about the rights of the person online, the user online. At the moment, we're a bit like Caliban on Prospero's Island, like surrounded by bots, trolls, algorithms. We don't understand how the informa information environment is being shaped and we're kind of made to feel things and fear things. I mean, telly was manipulative, but we kind of knew it's a telly station owned by Murdoch. Therefore, I can criticize it thus. You know, we had a relationship with all this you know, all this power around us. And now we don't know what the hell is going on. Is anyone trying to fix this? The Estonians, for example? I don't know. This has to be at a regulatory level. It will probably have to be at an EU level. But you just said that regulation doesn't work. Well, that... So I wouldn't regulate against content. I would regulate for towards transparency. So I would regulate so we start to understand how the environment around us has changed. Do you believe you can really do that? Yes, I think so. I don't see why not. So we started in California... You don't seem very convinced. Well, because I'm not a techie, and techies will always say a million problems, but... Uh, no, we have a bot law in the California that's just come out, which is basically saying a commercial political bot, it, it doesn't have to be taken down, but it has to self-identify. You know? When we see, you know, when we see all these fake news sites, they should say, you know, I am a news site, news site with these low editorial standards being created by Montenegro. But is X. that realistic that a news site would say we are a, a fake news site uh, paid for by Vladimir Putin? And well, the that, KGB? that's where the regulation should come in. So the regulation should be about transparency. So we can see the architecture around us. Okay. It would mean a different internet. It would mean we could actually see how things are created and why they're created. But is a different created. internet realistic in 2019? Well, this is, this is where, where it is regulation. This is where governments can go. These are the transparency rules. By the way, people will still choose to listen to fake news site if they want to. You know, they won't, this won't get rid of confirmation bias. This won't get rid of the appeal of populism but it will at least give us a fighting chance of understanding how the environment is shaped. And the third area? Well, the, well, the third one is, is the ideological one, because behind the technological crisis is the ideological one. And, and, and Behind, or they're sort of, they're, they're, they're kind of feeding each other? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an intertwined relationship. And the ideological conflict is one of Just, a kind of postmodernist... Um, denial of the idea of truth versus the idea of expertise and facts. Is that fair? Which I think is in turn 
a subset of this idea of the loss of a kind of irrational future, not just a dreamy hippie future, sorry, a yeah. dreamy, unrealistic future, but actually a concrete one. It's the other side of n yesterday, the love of yesterday. Yeah. For so tomorrow. But it's interesting watching. Tomorrow. Yeah, it's very interesting watching. Yes. It's very interesting watching the US sort of Democratic primaries. I mean, certainly Buttigieg gets this. He keeps on talking about, we've got to stop talking about Trump, let's talk about the future. But he can't then formulate it. It's quite, I keep on waiting for his big idea. Um, and maybe we have to think bottom up. Maybe it's not the time for, you know, Hayekian ideas of freedom. Maybe all that is over. Maybe that was actually connected to a broadcast model where you had one TV presenter, you know, beaming down a coherent ideology. Maybe it will be bottom up. I'm, I'm not a political philosopher. But but I do look at well. You are a lot. philosopher of politics. If you're not, even if you're not a political philosopher, you've you've made sense of politics in the post political age. Is that fair? when I look at propaganda and, and what I can see but, is missing from right, propaganda, and, and, and no. politics is now increasingly determined by propaganda. That's the point of of, of your work, particularly the latest book. I wish it wasn't, <laughs> but yes, no, no. I think generating that conversation about the future in really concrete ways, but but. So, but, you know, I might be a philosopher, but actually I'm just a, a journalist who's doing some, some writing on the side and a TV journalist originally. And that's kind of where, still where my instincts are. So from a journalistic point of view, I think it's actually very practical. How do we create films, programs, formats that generate the space for that conversation? So there's been a lot of research about this. Kathleen Hall Jameson in the 80s was talking about this already, that adversarial political debates lead to cynicism. And what you need is a, a solution, a, sort of a problem solving effect. Uh, a problem-solving process that engages people in a substantive discussion. But I hear propagandists say that. So Dominic Cummings, the guy who kind of created the Brexit campaign, said, look, what journalists should have been doing is nailing us to really concrete policies about how Brexit would work, and then over many years holding us to account. So a completely different approach, not taking two politicians and clashing them, but actually locking them in a conversation where you talk about the future. Look, journalism won't solve everything, but even on that kind of level, we could do so much more. Are you optimistic that that can happen? So here's the problem. Finding ways to measure that. So we do a little bit of work at, at the university I work at. We found kind of ways to kind of measure that, sort of metrics that measure not um, likes and shares, but measure constructive debates or less toxicity and so on and so forth. So we can do it technically, yeah? Uh, and we could find an evidence base to show we're doing it. However, and this is where we, get, we do get into sort of the, the technology, the ad tech system and the algorithms as currently formulated do reward completely the opposite. They, they reward high conflict and extreme positions. So ultimately, won't the solution come with a new generation of politicians who are able to tap public disillusionment with this system with this world, as perhaps is, is this happening now in Russia, that might be happening in Turkey, that may conceivably happen in the United States in 2020. At what point will the people get sick of all these lies of a world of propaganda? Okay, so, so that was the optimistic me. That uh, was the optimistic. That, now, yeah, now we've got the pessimistic. Well, let's look at the historical record on this. It's not as if we haven't been here before. I mean, probably, when were we here before, Peter? I, introduction of Prince, I think, is, is, is the other bit. Well, that was a long time. That was 500 yeah. years ago. Yeah, but then you have the wars of religion. Yeah, very, very so similar. So do we have to go is. through all that? So that was like, what was 100 it? 100 years war? Yeah. A century? I think of, it was 30. It was just 30. 30, but it resulted in, I don't know, 30% of Europeans dying? Is it going to be that bad? 
Firstly, I think that actually the casualties might not be here. I think casualties are already happening in places like Syria. I think that's actually part of the same crisis. It's not over there. It's part of certainly the way we've dealt with it is is part of the same the same lack of 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 uh, anything to believe in, I suppose. So I, I don't think the costs will be here necessarily. That's kind of a little bit. Europe is old. There'll be low level violence between extremist groups. I don't think there'll be tanks across the Rhine. But won't the costs be? Might be some violence in America. But won't be the costs be? the end of democracy? Won't the cost be the rise of uh, a Le Pen, um, of the kind of nationalist politicians who will essentially, uh, a la Putin or Erdogan, dismantle democracy? And it's, you don't have to go that far. So inside Britain, what we see with a certain clique of quite loud politicians is attacks on all the independent institutions, attacks on judges, attacks on media, attacks on the civil service. These were always the institutions which were kind of untouchable. I mean, a little bit, but, but essentially they were above politics. And that was really, you know, in that weird mix of representative democracy and old institutions, you know, they were what kind of kept things going. And so this attack on them is, is very, very worrying. So actually one guy that I talked to in the new book is a, is a kind of veteran campaigner who, who helped train activists in the Arab Spring, in the color revolutions, he's Serb. And, and I said, so what do you do nowadays? Uh, and he still trains people in like, you know, East Asia where there's old school dictatorships. But more and more he's asked to sort of help in Central Europe and, and sometimes in, in North America. And he's like, look at the moment, let's defend what we want. So let's do campaigns to defend the courts. Let's do campaigns to defend, um, you know, the good bits of the civil service. Let's defend, you know, these core institutions. So at the moment, actually his thing was, we're in a, a moment of uh, kind of a conservative moment. So your concluding remark in terms of protecting democracy is to suggest that people just need to be more political, to join parties, to join campaigns, to fight against the kind of anti-democratic populism that's trying to undermine our, uh, our institutions. Is that what I said? I don't know. I've never thought about that. I'm not very political. So it's kind of like, I, I don't know if I do enough of that. Um, I'll, well, tell, you you what, I'll that... tell you one thing though. No, I will tell you one thing though. That I don't know about joining these things. I don't know if they're still representative. But with again coming back to a really practical thing, the way that these propagandists work, and it's incredibly similar stack of mental tricks they have. They project a world where, which is full of dark conspiracies, where the truth is unknowable, and where therefore you can't change anything. Because if you live in a world of endless conspiracies. Well, you can't understand who's behind something. How on earth are you little guy going to change something? So therefore you need in this dark, scary world, Putin, Trump, et cetera, et cetera, to lead you through this, this world. The real antidote to that is proving to yourself that you can change things. Agency, yes. human agency. agency. Exactly. Agency, I do think, is actually key. That's, and that's, that's, that's the, the key thing. to democracy anyway. That's what democracy is supposed to do, to enable agency, individual agency. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's... That is a constant. Whether that means joining political parties, I don't, I don't know if that's the answer. But I think that's what, that's what they're trying to do. So in that sense, for all the newness, it's a really old one. You know, it really is about crushing the individual. But they're doing it in ways which are completely the opposite of what used to happen. In the sense that, or even the, the, you know, this idea that we had in the 20th century, that more self-expression was more freedom which was kind of embedded in jazz music and art and, you know, in, in, in poetry. It was, you know, one of the great messages of the 20th century. 
that Trump is basically like a modern artist, I and mean, he's like a verbal modern artist. It's like you know, he's like a, a Jackson Pollock painting come to verbal, come to verbal truth. And uh, <laughs> but the trick is now that the more you speak, the more kind of social media companies know about you, the more data is collected about you. You know, the more you reveal of yourself, actually, the less power you have because you can then be. You can then be sort of targeted with various campaigns. So democracy may be silence. If there's a sound of democracy, it's silence. It's self-reflection. I actually have heard that from a couple of people. When, they, when, when they, uh, one Russian guy called Vasily Gartov, who maybe you should interview, he's in Boston. He worked, actually, he worked in the Russian news system to a very senior level and left when Putin got back. But anyway, uh, when, when he looks at all the American responses to the Russians, he says the best one would be strategic silence. But strategic silence is not a bad one. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keen on Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.